Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. Stephanie, should we take a quick look at in the International Court of Justice decision on provisional measures against Myanmar under the Genocide Convention to prevent further harm to the Rohingya Muslim community? Uh, yeah, why not? I spent all my time yesterday doing it. I have lots to talk about. And shall we invite two of the best live tweeting international lawyers to join us? That sounds great. Well, I'm just going to get them up on Skype now. Priya Pillai, our international lawyer, uh, Opinion Europe's editor and one of the architects of the new Asia Justice Coalition that has taken the Rohingya issue and helped nudge the Gambia towards filing a case at the ICJ. Are you there, Priya? Hi. Yes, I am. Oh, and hi, Melanie O'Brien from the University of Western Australia Law School also known to be a big tweeter of cricket. So, Melanie, let's start. Can you give us a cricketing metaphor for what's just happened this week at the ICJ? <laughs> Actually, I am watching a game at the same time as, as talking to you guys tonight. So. Oh, multitasking. <laughs> well, I would say that the ICJ has certainly hit, uh, hit Myanmar for six <laughs> uh, with their ruling. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's probably about the best I can do. And you were both glued to the to the UN webcast on this. Priya, can you recap what happened in the decision for us? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I would sort of go with uh, Melanie's description as well of just saying, you know, it was hit for a six, and which I don't know if in baseball parlance that means, you know, knocking it out of the park. But essentially, you know, the idea is that um, the Gambia did very, very well. And it was a unanimous decision on the issuance of provisional measures and, you know, four very strong um, provisional measures that the court has sort of made incumbent on Myanmar to comply with. So I'm not sure if you want to go into the details of the measures right now, but, you know, this was a strong decision. And, and a good well, I think the details of the, the measures, the, the ones that are pretty obvious, is that um, the court ordered Myanmar to stop any acts that could constitute uh, genocide. Uh, and also order its military and all the paramilitary groups that it could control not to do anything that could maybe contribute to that. And they ordered Myanmar to uh, to report uh, back in on it. Was that a big surprise to you, Melanie? Not really, to be honest. If there were any of the measures that they were going to apply, it was going to be to order them to stop committing the acts and to report on it. Because in a way, there's no point in asking them to stop committing the acts if they then don't have to come back and report to the ICJ that they are actually undertaking the provisional measures as ordered by the court. But then there's reporting and there's reporting. And this is like first within four months and then every six months, a kind of regular report. Is that unusual for, for the ICJ? To be honest, I mean, on my sort of reading of some of the provisional measures orders, I haven't seen this before. So, you know, I mean, my assessment of this is essentially, I think the court is really conversant with the fact that, you know, this is a case, an allegation of genocide that's come before it. And the last time they had provisional measures were you know, in 1993, and they issued measures in April 93. They had to go back and issue another set of orders in September 93. And of course, none of those were complied with. So I think, you know, this is a bit of the court also being much more proactive and being, you know, uh, being aware that perhaps its sort of reputation is also on the line in a way. 
1993 case that Priya is talking about is the Bosnia versus Serbia genocide case, where they did issue several um, provisional measures to make sure that uh, uh, Serbia didn't do anything that could possibly constitute genocide. And in the end, um, the 1995 Srebrenica genocide happened in spite of all those provisional measures. So now the court is kind of on top of this. Um, now, Melanie, what were your favorite bits of this ruling, if we could pick out bits for it? I had two favorite moments, uh, I guess you could describe from the case. And one was the fact that the court has actually said that the Rohingya appear to be a protected group under the Genocide Convention. So, I mean, the downside of that is that they didn't actually analyze that any further and they didn't go into detail about what kind of group they're classifying them as, but it's still a really important step to saying they are protected under the convention. And the other thing that was really great that came out of this was the fact that they said under the genocide convention, any state party can take action against another state party to the convention for failure to live up to their obligations under the convention. And, and that is just so significant because it's It's different from how we normally see treaty law, where we say a specially affected state is the only state who can take action. So it's really tapping into the essence of the Genocide Convention and the fact that it's about global protection against mass atrocities. And I think this was the the being a protected group is also really what touched the Rohingya activists. Uh, for instance, Jasmine Ula, who we also uh, put on our podcast, and she felt it was really important that she was recognized as an ethnic minority because Myanmar uh, really doesn't uh, recognize the Rohingya as an ethnic minority. It insists on calling them Bengali, and it really also didn't use the word Rohingya in their filings or in their uh, pleadings to the ICJ only to refer to some kind of a military group that calls itself the Rohingya Salvation Army, but all the other references were always to either Muslims or Bengali and not really recognizing as, them as a separate group. Absolutely. I mean, I would sort of add to Stephanie and Mel, basically, you know, the idea that the Rohingya essentially have been erased, you know, from Myanmar law, including in its citizenship law. And, you know, this is really a recognition of the fact that they deserve protection and, you know, as Yasmin said, you know, are, are deserving of this. So, you know, while I, I would still caution that, of course, this is provisional measures, you know, this is very much an initial sort of lower threshold, but I still think this is a, a huge, huge decision that's come out. Um, the other thing that I will sort of say is the provisional measure which talks about the preservation of evidence. I mean, I think that's really important as well. And, you know, to have the court state very explicitly that this is an obligation of Myanmar, given that there have been, you know, uh, accounts of either mass graves being, you know, wiped out or entire villages being raised to the ground. You know, I think this is an important step, especially considering the fact that you've got an international criminal court case ongoing, which, yes, has has a limited mandate, but it, You know, not to forget that there's also the IIIM, which is the independent investigative mechanism for Myanmar, which is also collecting evidence. So, you know, by putting this legal obligation on Myanmar, I think the court is sort of putting it on notice as well. And the fact is that the Myanmar is going to have to report on these provisional measures also. And not to forget, Gambia also has a chance to respond to the reports. So I think, you know, all in all, just a few really important points in this order. 
Anything in the separate opinions? Anything in in the um, in the other bits that uh, that only um, supremely nerdy constitutional lawyers will be interested in? Well, I have one bit which I'm just curious about, and I haven't had the time, you know, the bandwidth to to look at in more detail at this point. But the fact that the court, you know, of course, referred to the fact finding mission, and you know, the the application referred to the FFM, but the court in its order did reference a lot of general assembly resolutions so i'm curious to know you know whether other provisional measures have gone into such detail to my mind they haven't but yeah this is a question that you know i'd love some international law nerd to you know dig up and and maybe do some more work on just not me some of the international law nerds that i spoke to outside of the ruling for instance i ran into I ran into Joe, um, who did the Jensen Joe podcast with us, and he said that the separate opinion of the Myanmar appointed judge was quite interesting because what's kind of rare is that they voted unanimously for these provisional measures. And what happens usually on ICJ panels is all, both countries in the dispute get to appoint a judge, and that judge usually votes kind of in favor of their country. In this case, you had unanimous vote for the provisional measures, but it kind of makes clear that he ha- that judge very much has his doubts about whether this case should go forward on the merits, but just out of an abundance of caution, because it's just in the provisional stage, you know, he agreed with these provisional measures. But there are some pointers in there that he doesn't quite agree with some of the things that the judges said in the end. And Mel, was there anything that uh, struck you nerdily? Yeah, so... I confess I couldn't get through Cansado Tundare's separate opinion. Uh, it was a little bit long <laughs> um, in, in, in typical fashion. Um, but I was a little bit concerned by Judge Hui's separate opinion because what you see there is, is something that to me doesn't come across as really objective but comes across as Chinese because she actually says that the evidence and the documents that were submitted to the court, uh, she says, while displaying an appalling situation of human rights violations, present a case of a protracted problem of ill treatment of ethnic minorities in Myanmar rather than of genocide. So, you know, she's already come out and said she's... This is problematic because we... We can see that China is a supporter of Myanmar and China is very much against, uh, you know, classifying anything as genocide uh, for their own reasons, uh, for obvious reasons there. But also what we see here is that essentially she's already saying it's not genocide. It's like she's already made her decision because what the court was saying in the majority was that it's plausible, it's possible. They didn't say that it is genocide. You know, they didn't want to preempt the merits. But this separate opinion, you know, seems to be preempting her opinion that it's not genocide, which I think is problematic. Yeah, I think Joe flagged that up to me as well. This is the Chinese vice president of the court who had also a lengthy separate opinion where she kind of goes into this plausibility and, and genocidal intent, but then says, well, we shouldn't look at it in this case. But if it goes forward, I think that maybe it's not, it will be quite difficult to prove that, which is a, a kind of odd thing to say in a separate opinion. And everybody's pointing heads to the next stage, which is uh, deciding the case, as they put it in the ICJ's terms, on its merits. So the full shebang, the full thing, was there a genocide, wasn't there, and uh, and everything. And there seems to be a lot of, um, well, we don't think it will actually work at that level. What, what are your opinions, Priya? 
Well, I mean, Janet, there actually still are going to be a few more steps before even the merits. So, you know, there's still this stage which is where states can come up with objections, called preliminary objections. There might be, you know, questions and objections on jurisdiction and standing admissibility as well. So again, now we've got to see how the parties deal with the next steps and, you know, what they bring up. And after that, of course, will be the merits. You know, that's the final sort of end point and end goal of this entire case. And, you know, this essentially now is going to be a bit of a hard, long slog and it's going to take time. So, yeah, not to hold your breath on things moving extremely fast from here onwards. I think the only thing that we can hope is that it doesn't take as long as the previous genocide cases because the Rohingya simply don't have that kind of time. They don't have a decade to wait for the ICJ to make a ruling. So I, I just, I really hope that, I mean, we know it's going to take some time, but I hope it certainly doesn't take that long. Just to add to that, I mean, so in terms of the time frame, that was 14 years. You know, the, the first filings were in 1992 and the final decision was 2007. So, yeah. yeah. The data added, I mean, we all, I guess nobody wants it to go as long as that, but the kind of general time frame of a case for the ICJ is around about five years. And if it's really, really quick, then maybe they can do it in three years. But that doesn't sound like this is a case that's going to move this fast. Well, I'm just going to wrap it up now by giving a quick shout out to uh, Ebba Lekval, who uh, asked for this podcast and asked for the two of you to uh, to take part. So thank you, Ebba, and uh, thank you both of you for uh, for joining in uh, in the evenings in, in your time. Speak to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Enjoy your evenings. Bye. Thank you. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.